0: friends, welcome to another Sunday edition of Different Church. My name is Hannah. I am the pastor of Different Church. I'm very excited that you are here as we keep talking about faith and we keep talking about the Bible and exploring all of those things together. Don't forget, very exciting, our opening date for in-person services will be Sunday, July 12th. So that is coming up very soon. And also at the end of the service today, at the end of this message, there will be a very cool song, which I'll tell you more about later. So, Pull up a chair, grab your coffee, grab whatever you need to, get your breakfast, and let's jump in, shall we? Today our passage is from Numbers, which is a book in the Old Testament. Um, It's near the beginning, so you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book in the Old Testament. And we are going to read Numbers 11, verses 24 through 30 in the New Living Translation. So I'm going to go ahead and read that, and then we are going to dive in. Verse 24. So Moses went out and reported the Lord's words to the people. He gathered the 70 elders and stationed them around the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to Moses. Then he gave the 70 elders the same spirit that was upon Moses. And when that spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But that didn't happen again. Two men, Eldad and Medad, had stayed behind in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they had not gone out to the tabernacle. Yet the spirit rested on them as well. So they prophesied right there in the camp. A young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' assistant since his youth, protested, Moses, my master, make them stop. And Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord was put his spirit on them all. And then Moses returned to camp with the elders of Israel. Now, This is a funny little narrative (laughs) in the middle of a much bigger narrative that spans like Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers of the Israelites traveling from Egypt to the promised land. Um, But it's even funnier because this little nugget is in the middle of a larger chapter, which I invite you to go read chapter 11 at some point when you have time. Because right before this passage starts, the Israelites are complaining. In fact, they are complaining bitterly. They are very upset. They're in the middle of nowhere. They're in the wilderness. The journey has been long. <laughs> they are tired of walking in the unknown. The, the promised land is nowhere in sight. All of this is getting to everyone. And the final straw for these people is that they are tired of eating manna. Now, manna was a food that God was sending to the Israelites overnight, every night, enough for every person to eat, And get full. And manna, the word literally means what is it? Because Israelites had no idea what it was. It would just show up on the ground like dew. And it was some kind of seed-like substance that they could grind. They could make flour out of it. They could make bread, etc. But they didn't know what it was. So they called it manna. What is it? And every night when they went to sleep, God would put manna on the ground. And they would wake up and they would collect the manna. And they'd have enough food for the day. But they couldn't collect more than one day's worth of food except for the day before the sabbath and they collect two days if they collected a horde of manna it would all spoil by the time they woke up in the next morning so it was literally like daily bread they couldn't have more than one day's worth but they had been eating this for a while and everyone was getting very tired of manna it's been weeks months since they had anything else to eat obviously manna is better than no food But eating the same thing every day for every meal gets pretty old quickly. I'm not sure (laughs) if there's foods that you ate so much when you were a kid that you refuse to eat them now. For me, Raisin Bran. (laughs) We had Raisin Bran so much when I was a kid because my parents love it and they still love it. I don't know how. If you're watching, Mom, I don't know how you still eat Raisin Bran. I cannot stomach Raisin Bran to save my life. It gets near me and I'm like, no, I ate it too much. So these people are really grouchy they've had enough they're up to here with manna they're grouchy they complain they wish they could just have some meat it's been so long since they've had a nice sabbath dinner with vegetables and wine and meat and the head of the household got to carve the roast beast they're just reminiscing they're like if only we could have some meat so they're just complaining they're miserable and all the sermons i've heard like fault the israelites for this but it seems completely reasonable to me that they would be complaining and upset here. So isn't it a normal human response to complain and to be upset and to, be, to have that kind of reaction when you're feeling overwhelmed and especially when you when you have this all this uncertainty and then in the middle of that you're doing the same thing. Eating the same thing, doing the same thing over and over and over and over. I'm sure some of you have felt this during the coronavirus times that we are in. Especially during the quarantine, during the lockdown, you were just at home doing the same thing over and over and over and eating the same things and it wears thin. It wears on you a lot. So this is kind of what the Israelites are feeling. And we also know that when we have outrage, when we're very outraged about tiny things in life during difficult times, it's often because there's something bubbling beneath the surface right? Like if you yell at your partner for leaving the toilet seat up, it's probably not because he left the toilet seat up, right? It's because there's something deeper. It's just the last straw. If you yell at your kids for leaving a dish in the sink, it's usually because it's the last straw. It's not because you're particularly upset because there's a dish in the sink one time. Especially when we're dealing dealing with things like grief, loss, exhaustion, anxiety, Too many days of upset kids in a row. All of that gets channeled into something tiny. And for the Israelites, it seems like this is getting channeled into manna (laughs) again. (laughs) We're so upset with this manna. When you have very few emotional reserves left to live on, the tiniest thing can lead to a big eruption. And I'm sure that this has all happened in all of our lives. So we can't really fault the Israelites as a whole for feeling this as we have felt it as well. So the people are grouchy, they're drained, they're exhausted, and they are just erupting. They are so emotionally drained and grumpy that they actually start to reminisce about the good old days when they were slaves in Egypt. And we think, oh, crazy, right? No. I mean, sure, they were slaves in Egypt, but at least they had Sabbath dinner with the family every week. Sure, they were worked to the bone by their cruel masters in Egypt, but at least they lived in a hut near a river instead of in a a tent in the middle of who knows where with no plan to find the promised land that they have been told about for months now. Sure, they had no future in Egypt, and they didn't have their freedom, but at least they didn't have to exist in the endless unknown of the desert, the wilderness. They didn't have to face their demons They didn't have to try to make their own way in a world that refused to accept them or make space for them. Things weren't better in Egypt, but they weren't unknown in Egypt. And how many times do we do this? We wish for the safer option, quote unquote, the safer old option that we already escaped from because the old was so much easier. The old was predictable and the new is just too difficult to face. And we think about the old thing that we used to do or the old place that we used to live, an old relationship that we used to have, even though it was killing us. And we're like, I wish, I just remember the good old times. (laughs) Because what's happening right now is so uncertain and so unknown and it's overwhelming. So they're all complaining, hopelessly, angrily. And who do they complain to? The only person in charge. (laughs) Moses So they're complaining all of them. And they complain to Moses. And then Moses in turn complains to God <laughs> because Moses doesn't have anyone else to complain to. So Moses complains to God about how difficult all these people are being. Nothing seems to make them happy. They're hungry, they complain. They have food, they complain. They hate the manna. They complain. They didn't have manna. They complained before. Moses is on the brink of burnout, just like everyone else, because he's trying to do everything himself. And he's just as emotional as the Israelites are. And he even says to God, did I give birth to these people? Did I bring them into the world? In other words, I'm not their parent. I'm sick of these screaming kids. They're not even mine. (laughs) They're, They're not even my kids. I don't have to look for them. Look out for them. And oddly, in this narrative, God is rather human as well. (laughs) And the narrator, the writer of this story is portraying God as also entirely fed up with the situation and with the Israelites themselves. Even God in this story is getting passive aggressive, promising, God actually promises to give these annoying complaining people so much meat because they're wishing for meat. He's going to give them so much meat that it will come out of their noses. And they will never want to eat meat again. God actually threatens that they will have to eat this meat for an entire month until the thought of eating any more meat makes them want to vomit. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This is why the narrative is so funny to me. The people are complaining. They complain to Moses. Moses complains. He complains to God. Then God complains and threatens to make quail run out of their noses. They'll be so sick of it, which is a pretty intense metaphor. Like, literally, I've, not to gross you out, but like, have you ever vomited so hard that like a little bit comes out your nose? That's the metaphor that's used there. So then Moses has to talk God off of a ledge and they agree together that Moses does in fact need help. God's like, okay, get your elders. We're going to spread the burden of all of these people among more than just you because you're about to be burned out. So God tells Moses, go get these 70 leaders. We're going to help him lead the people. What a strange little story. Because the people are complaining, a completely normal response to being overwhelmed and feeling out of control. And then Moses is complaining, a completely normal response to feeling overwhelmed and out of control. And then the authority figure in the story, God, is also complaining and resorting to threats to get everyone to back off. Which, from watching world history, I'm sure we can see that this is also a pretty normal response for leaders to have. So the point of this narrative is not that God is acting like an overwhelmed, vindictive human here. Of course that's how God is written into this story. How could God be anything else? The writer, the people, they don't have experience with God being anything else. They haven't encountered the God that comes to mind when we think of God because there would have been no frame of reference for that in their culture. But they are going to learn something crucial about how God actually is different than the Egyptian gods. God is different than the gods of their surrounding culture. God is different than the God that they think God is. They're going to come out of this story, not with a full understanding of God, but with a little nugget, an understanding of how God encounters people that they didn't have before. And it's so important and so crucial that it gets written down and preserved until we're reading it thousands of years later. So the question is, what is the thing they're learning? We've went through all of the complaining, (laughs) all of that narrative, and then we pick up with what I read, where God says, get the 70 people, bring them out. So for a while now, in this whole narrative of the Old Testament, God has been meeting with Moses in a singular set-aside place It's called the Tent of Meeting. It's also called the Tabernacle. So the tent was this sacred space. It was essentially a temple, a church as we would think of it, but way more special than we would think of just a regular church building. Wherever the Israelites go, the tent gets constructed. When they move on, it gets torn down. And the minute they set up camp, it gets constructed again. On the first day it was built, a cloud covered the Tabernacle Tent. And it looked like a cloud during the day, and at night it looked like a pillar of fire. This just continued indefinitely. There was a cloud on the tent or there was fire near the tent to represent God being there. This sacred meeting tent, called the Tabernacle, it played a central role in the faith life of the entire community. It's a significant symbol of God's presence with them and to them. And when they questioned anything, excuse me, I feel like I'm about to get the hiccups. I'm not going to edit that out because you know what? I'm a human (laughs) and I think it would be hilarious if I got the hiccups in the middle of this message. (sighs) Y'all pray for me. (laughs) So when they questioned anything, the Israelites could actually just look to the tent and see, they could see the fire, see the cloud, be reassured that God was still with them. The tent is this constant in the middle of their huge change of being in the wilderness, of wandering, of moving around. It's a structure of stability in a very unstable set of circumstances when the 70 elders, which isn't necessarily a literal number of people, it's just meant to represent a large number. So Moses has a large number of people who are going to help him lead all of the Israelites. So they're invited to the tent to meet with Moses and meet with God and get their instructions on how they're going to manage all of the Israelites. So they, in order to do that, they have to leave the camp and go to the sacred space, which is the tent. And then at the tent, they're all together. They're all there to get their instructions. And the Spirit of God comes on them and they start prophesying. And together they share in this collective vision. So they encounter God in the place that they expected to encounter God. If you want to encounter God, you go to the tent. That's what Moses does. That's clearly where God is. No questions, right? Everyone understands God is over there. (laughs) God is specifically over there. And that's where you go if you're going to meet God. Except... The two people who were in that group weren't able to go to the tent. They were still in the camp. Their names were Eldad and Me No one knows what those mean. What those names mean. So they're just still in the middle of the camp. They're in the middle of the ordinary common space with the rest of the people. They're in a place not where people are prophesying, but where ordinary life is happening. Laundry's being done, dishes are being washed foods being cooked, the manna that everyone is hating at the moment. Children are running around screaming. There's just hustle and bustle and noise and all of the stuff that you would imagine in a busy group of people. They are not in the sacred space. They're not in the dedicated space where they meet God. But then they have the same kind of encounter with God as all of these people over here who are at the tent. These people are prophesying and then Eldad and Medad by themselves in the camp, surrounded by everything. They start prophesying as well. And the word of this, oh my gosh, shocking news. It's the most interesting thing that's happened in camp in ages. Everyone is talking about how Eldad and Me Dad were just in the middle of life and then they start prophesying. How? What? What is happening? Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's gossiping. Why? Because it's a breach of expectations. How could God possibly be showing up outside of the place that is assigned for God? It's the designated God place, but yet that's over there. It's not over here, but they're over here and now God is over here and we don't understand what's going on. If God can just reveal truth, if God can just reveal God's self, any old place, to anybody, then what are we going to do with that? Who's going to keep everybody in line? (laughs) Who is going to make sure that there's no confusion, that there's no challenges to authority, that there's no situations that have to be stopped? everyone's freaking out so joshua who is moses right hand person has been his assistant since he was a little boy he is particularly upset by this he says moses you have got to make them stop if if they're doing that then how do we know what they're doing how do we know what they're saying who's gonna keep track of them how do we know that it's even god because god is over here you know God can possibly be over there. They're just, what if they have a demon? How do we know? Moses is, (laughs) for his part, completely unbothered by the entire situation. Moses is much more interested in prioritizing the accessibility of God to everyone everywhere than with his own authority and control. Joshua is essentially saying, Moses, make them follow the rules. Make them meet God in the God place. And Moses is like... I mean, the God place is great. (laughs) I have personal knowledge of the God place. This is where I talk with God all the time. This is where God meets with me. And it's important to set aside a sacred space for a particular focused attention on God. Worship, teaching, gathering together. But this does not prevent Moses' ability to also value a regular ordinary encounter with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Moses says, man, I wish everybody... (laughs) I wish everybody everywhere might participate in this kind of experience with God. And that's the point. That's the point the narrative has been trying to teach us. That nugget of truth. In the middle of all of this complaining and threats and pettiness, the nugget of truth that they finally begin to understand about God is that God doesn't have to meet people in our pre-designed, pre-designated spaces with our pre-assigned rules. And that may sound like it's not mind-blowing, but for them, that was mind-blowing. What do you mean that God is going to meet someone outside of the God place? What do you mean that if someone doesn't follow the rule of going to the sacred God space, the tent, the tabernacle, the church building, what do you mean that God can still meet them. But people have been meeting God outside of the church for a long time. (laughs) Sometimes it comes unexpectedly, like God meeting a person when they're praying at home or dancing in a bar or taking a walk outside, God can meet someone anywhere. Sometimes it's come because people have been kicked out of church, um, because people have been suppressed and oppressed and not allowed in church spaces for a myriad of reasons and God refuses Refused then and refuses now to be placed in our pathetic, I don't know if that's too strong of a word, pathetic little box that insists that people have to believe and act the same way that we do in order to encounter God in a real way. There have been so many people like Joshua who are like, hey, you have to make them stop. They can't have God out there. That's... They can't possibly have God out there. We have God. This is our God space. If they want God, they have to come in here. They're just appalled. (laughs) These people are appalled and threatened whenever they hear the experience of God encounters from people who are outside of the mainstream church community. And unfortunately, sometimes those people are us. Sometimes they're us. I know, I know, it's difficult. But sometimes we are the ones who are horrified and threatened. And we don't know what to do. When someone has an experience of God and it's different than the one that we're used to. But there's no place that God can't meet someone. God has been doing this for centuries, for millennia, right? God has been meeting people of color, black people specifically in America for centuries while they were prevented access to the so-called sacred spaces where the proper people worshiped. God met them outside. God has been meeting the LGBT plus community for years while they have not been allowed to practice their faith in churches across America. God has been meeting women for millennia while they were not allowed to speak or teach or preach or share the good news of Jesus Christ. God will meet anybody, especially people who are not able to enter safely into our sacred spaces. And God will never stop meeting with people, regardless of what it does to our expectations or our rules about God. And sometimes, just like the Israelites, it takes us pretty much a complete and utter breakdown, (laughs) or at least nearing an edge of it, before we are able to realize and see the unhealthy patterns that we've been living in. Sometimes it takes like a complete complete and clear, that's two words, complete and clear crisis, perhaps like we've been having with this pandemic, for us to finally have our eyes open to what's really going on around us and what's really going on inside of us for us to finally learn something new about God and about faith and what it means to be a person of faith. Perhaps it sometimes takes us all the way to the edge of ourselves, to the edge of what we feel comfortable with, to the edge of everything that we think is appropriate or allowed. It takes us all the way there before we finally can relent and, and cry out like Moses did, that I wish all the Lord's people were prophets. I wish this encounter would happen to everybody who calls upon the name of Jesus. I wish that this God experience was available no matter what, no matter your race, your creed, your ethnicity, your sexuality, your gender identity, your age, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what your situation looks like, no matter your economic stability, it doesn't matter. I wish that this would happen to everyone. And that it doesn't necessarily have to happen in our pre assigned sacred space. So I just hope that we can reflect on that this week and all the ways in which we, as a faith community, can welcome all people together and reject none, for God may be encountered by all people, anywhere, anytime, and that's beautiful, but we also want God to be encountered in our space. We never want to be the so-called sacred space that doesn't allow people in, never, so i just hope we can reflect on that this week and truly think about what it means to say i wish that all of god's people would have this experience and so now we're going to close with a benediction this prayer and promise for the week ahead uh, but don't forget that we have a very special cover song called the middle by the different church band that will be playing immediately after i'm done praying And I hope that you will stay for it because it's beautiful. (laughs) The band does a fantastic job. And also, it must be time to end this recording because I just got an eyelash in my eye. (laughs) So I hope that you will stay for the song because it's delightful. And I think it will really speak to your heart. And I will see you next week. But before we go, let's pray together. Come Holy Spirit, rouse the people of God. The earth is groaning for restoration. Come, Holy Spirit, and revive what has gone stale. Wash away everything that suppresses and silences and condemns us. We go in faith that the Spirit is moving even when we cannot perceive it. She grows like a fire, burning brighter each day. Let us open our hearts to the work of love. God's work is always brewing. And the holy potential for the renewal of all things surrounds us. Amen. Until I see you next week, be safe, be healthy, and I hope that the joy of the Lord gives you strength. Bye, friends. Hey,
1: don't write yourself off yet. It's only in your head you feel left out. I'll look down on. Try your best, try everything you can And don't you worry what they tell themselves when you're away It just takes some time, little girl, you're in the middle of the ride Everything, everything will be just fine Everything, everything will be alright So don't